1: I have you loud and clear.
2: <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome.
3: Welcome. <laughs> Science.
1: And that is to say. Physics. Medicine. Nature. Or. Space.
3: Time. The brain. Life. The universe.
4: Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine.
1: With me, Phil Sansom. And with me, Chris Smith. Coming up the science behind Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine announcement and, crucially, what they're not telling us yet the mink farms that are spreading a new variant of COVID 19 and why UK scientists are trying to extract oxygen from the moon. Plus, we're halfway through our On The Move month, and this
4: week it's People On The Move. From ancient humans to modern travellers, to the future of migration in a changing world. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by
1: ukfast.co.uk. Now this week, for the first time in quite a while, we actually got some good news about the coronavirus pandemic.
5: Trials carried out by the US pharmaceutical giant Pfizer and the German manufacturer BioNTech suggest they have created a coronavirus vaccine which is more than 90% effective.
4: They've described it in their announcement as a great day for science and humanity. Their vaccine is currently in the final stage, phase three, of the approval process. It's being tested on 43,500 people in six countries. And so far it seems to be safe. Jonathan Van Tam, one of England's Deputy Chief Medical Officers, cautioned that one swallow does not make a summer, but otherwise made optimistic overtures.
6: If I could, rightly and morally, be at the very front of the queue, then I would do so.
1: Nevertheless, despite the hype and the hope, there is still an enormous amount that we don't know about this vaccine, which works in a totally new way that's never been tried before in humans. And more is an immunologist from University College Cork, And she's with us now to tell us more about it. Anne, how does this vaccine work?
5: The vaccine works by delivering a piece of genetic material into the cell. And uh, we've been doing this since the, I suppose, the mid-1990s with DNA, which is one type of genetic material. And we've always wanted to use the other type of genetic material, which is RNA. But the big problem with it up to a few years ago was that RNA is so... Unstable and it degrades very quickly as soon as you put it into the body. And it's quite difficult to get it into a cell as well. So we had to overcome those problems. So this company, BioNTech, and other companies out there as well, Moderna in the US are also taking a similar approach, have uh, changed the RNA to make it much more stable so it doesn't degrade as easily. And they've also found this kind of little lipid drop that you put the RNA in so that it doesn't break down when you put it into the body. And then there's enough uh, instructions on that piece of genetic material to drive production of the spike protein from the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19.
1: So you're putting in the genetic message corresponding to the, the outer coat, this spike protein of the virus, and cells can actually read that genetic message when you inject it and then make their own version as though they've been infected by the virus for real.
5: Exactly. And the nice thing is that they haven't been infected by the virus for real or any other virus. So the immune system can just focus on looking and responding to that spike protein from the SARS-CoV-2 virus.
1: Admittedly, it's early days at the moment, but what do we know about the response the body is making in people who have received this vaccine and vaccines like it?
5: Pfizer and BioNTech published uh, some of their phase one data And what we know is that when it's used, you get high levels of antibodies and very strong uh, T cell responses, which are these cells that can go around and they're like the marines of the immune system. They can uh, kill any virus infected cells and they can also support the correct development of antibodies as well. So it seems to be a a global response overall. What we don't know very well is how much of these responses are needed to protect you from infection from SARS-CoV-2.
1: And how long do those responses persist for? Because that's another key question, isn't it? We can't presumably have much knowledge yet because we've only known about the virus for uh, under a year and we've only had this vaccine trial going on for a matter of months.
5: Exactly. I mean, it is an absolutely crucial question is how long can those immune responses, those antibodies and those T cells remain strong enough in the body to provide that protection? And Unfortunately, we're not smart enough to know yet as soon as we immunise somebody how long that protection will last. Time is needed to see how long those immune responses stay high. I suppose the other really, really key question that we don't know at all is what is the threshold of protection that's required? So if you need uh, very little antibodies or t cell to still protect you against infection, then these vaccines, you know, we have more faith that these vaccines will protect you for longer but if you need to maintain very very high levels of antibodies and t cells then the likelihood is that the durability of protection will wane will go down a bit faster than than we would like
1: there was enormous fanfare around the 90% number the announcement was it's 90% effective but if you turn that round it means it's a 10% failure or a failure 10% of the time we weren't told who the 10% it doesn't protect are and if they end up being the same 10% as the people who are destined to get severe illness with coronavirus arguably it doesn't move us very much further forward this vaccine.
5: Well the 90% efficacy so efficacy is what we see in clinical trials which is what Pfizer have seen and then effectiveness is when it goes out into the community and the population overall. So the 90% efficacy it means of the people that were infected, 90% were from the placebo group and only 10% were vaccinated. So it's saying that if you have the vaccine, you you have a 90% less possibility of being infected. And for a lot of vaccines, that's more than sufficient. For, for some vaccines like measles and things like that, we do need a higher protection such as 95%. I don't know of any vaccines that will give you 100% protection. Plus, as long as 90% of the community are protected, it provides a good barrier for the population. For somebody who works in vaccines, 90% protection is good. We're, we're happy with that. It's, it's a good response.
1: <laughs> it's good to finish on a highlight. And thanks very much for joining us to talk about it. That's Anne Moore from University College Cork.
4: Now, unfortunately, some less positive coronavirus news came from Denmark this week, where since July, over 200 people have been infected with versions of the virus that have been spreading through mink farms. Farmers likely transmitted it to the mink, where it is mutated in different ways. And recently, scientists confirmed that some of these mutants have jumped out of the mink and back into humans, and then possibly also between humans too. Now, the worry is that these mutations could render the infection resistant to the vaccines that we're developing. Alina Chan is a scientist from the Broad Institute in the US. She's been following the story and explained to me how she sees the situation.
7: In Denmark, they have more than 1,100 mink farms, more than 200 have been found to have COVID-19 outbreaks. And now that virus that has been circulating among the minks has passed back into the human population in Denmark.
4: Wow, you know, I wouldn't have put minks as top on my list of COVID threats.
7: Yeah, this is not too surprising, although it's really devastating to hear this news. That's because uh, we've known for a while, scientists have known for a while, that SARS-type viruses can infect ferrets, which are in the same family as minks. And so it's not surprising that minks are susceptible to SARS-CoV-2.
4: So is this the first time that minks have got SARS-CoV-2?
7: No, so this is not the first time that this whole scenario of transmission from humans to minks to humans has been observed. As of today, there are at least six countries that have reported these mink outbreaks. So we've got Denmark, but the first was actually the Netherlands, and they were the first to report a mink outbreak back in April of this year.
4: Do we know what happens to the virus when it's in the minks?
7: This part is is kind of a mystery, or I'd say at least an ongoing study. There were two publications that just came out. Uh, One of them is by the Dutch group. There are a few caveats in their approach, but they said that they see some hints of faster evolution of the virus in the minks. More analysis needs to be done and by independent uh, groups of scientists. Uh, The other publication is by the Danish group, but this is a working paper, and so... They have not shared their mink genomes yet, although they have committed to the WHO that they will.
4: So we don't have the full picture then of what the virus looks like in the minks. But am I right that we do know what the virus looks like once it's left minks and is back in humans again?
7: Yes, we can see what could be the mink-associated variants coming out back into the human population in these two countries as well. In Denmark, there's one cluster that's particularly concerning. It's called Cluster 5. A cluster is a group of SARS 2 sequences in this case that look really similar to each other. This cluster has a combination of different mutations in the uh, spike gene. This is what helps it to infect different host species and is also the target of some of the most potent therapeutic antibodies.
4: What are the mutations?
7: They see about three to four different mutations, and actually each one of them has been around since at least March across many countries and continents. So the individual mutations, they are not novel, but as a combo, they are novel. But they found that the most recent mutation, I692V, no other country in the world has uh, detected it, and it only appeared in August.
4: I mean, what's the implication?
7: According to the Danish paper that came out, they got convalescent plasma from patients and they found that in some of the cases, the plasma was not able to neutralize the new mink-associated variant And so now they are a bit worried that this could have an impact on antibody therapeutics or vaccines in development. But again, just to emphasize, the effect that they saw is not that drastic, but it does suggest that people who don't have long-lasting immunity could be susceptible to this new variant.
4: So what's your take? Is the virus now more dangerous that it's gone through mix?
7: I don't know. I think that's the answer that most scientists would tell you is that we just don't know. I don't think people should panic. When I say mutations, it doesn't mean that every single mutation makes these viruses more transmissible or more dangerous for humans. Not at all. In fact, many of them could actually be taking a step backwards, considering that they are adapting to a different animal species. What the worry here is, besides from these mink farms being a a pool, they are generating more diverse viruses. So if these different variants, even if some of them are weaker in humans, if they enter the human population again, and we start implementing uh, widespread vaccination, for example, this will select for those rare variants that vaccines don't work as well against.
4: There you go, Alina Chan, showing us that we definitely can't take our eyes off the ball, even when it comes to other animals.
1: This week, a British firm announced that they've won a very prestigious European Space Agency contract to develop technology to extract oxygen from dust. But this is not just any old dust. It's moon dust. Katie Haler.
8: We've been contracted to extract oxygen from moon dust.
2: That's Ian Meller. Managing Director of Metalysis, a British company who specialise in producing metal powders through a process called electrolysis. Electrolysis uses an electric current to separate ionically bonded substances. In this case, moon dusts metal oxides, so metals and oxygen.
8: Roughly 50% oxygen and 50% metals, typically aluminium, iron, titanium. Our process is an electrochemical process. There are two electrodes. The cathode is the moon dust. You apply a small voltage between the two electrodes. The oxygen is moved from the the moon dust. It goes through a a conducting electrolyte. It reaches the anode and it is gassed off as oxygen and leaves the metal powder that can be used for making structures.
2: Metallicists have recently been awarded a contract from the European Space Agency to get their chemical process working on the moon. And out there on the moon, it's actually the oxygen from moon dust that they're primarily interested in.
8: On Earth, the oxygen is a, a waste byproduct. In a moon context, the oxygen is the key product. It can be used as a fuel or a propellant, it can be used for breathing to sustain life and activity on the moon.
2: It's a rather exciting time in the world of space exploration at the moment. Although, when isn't it? to be honest. But the backdrop to this particular story is NASA's 2024 Artemis program to return to the moon. One key component of this mission is to actually build a base at the lunar south pole to support longer expeditions to the surface, and a plentiful supply of oxygen is critical if we're to support people up there. What's more, Ian reckons this oxygen could be helpful as a fuel In fact, in an interview with The Guardian, he described the idea as a bit like a lunar petrol station that craft could one day use before making their way out to deeper space. So what's so special about this particular process? Why work towards having this technology on the moon?
8: The moon dust is always in the solid state, so there's no dissolving, whereas in other processes you would actually dissolve the moon dust. It allows us to do the process much more efficiently. There's no need to melt, which is normally associated with with high temperatures.
2: Less energy required means the process becomes more efficient, which is reassuring as energy might be at quite a premium when you're not hooked up to the earthly grid.
8: The process operates at around 900 degrees C. Solar cells provide the electrical energy we would need for the electrolysis.
2: And adequately powering this process isn't the only thing to consider when trying to do chemistry on the moon. They're working to get it automated, so it wouldn't need a whole lot of human supervision to get on with its task. But there are other practical challenges to consider.
8: The questions that we're looking to answer, gravity being one, very dusty environment, the moon, and you don't want to get dust into your equipment. It needs to be as small and as light as possible.
2: And what about sustainability? If we're mining on the moon, is it just going to be left with a bunch of holes in it?
8: We can actually take the surface moon dust. So we don't need to send up drilling equipment. We don't need to be intrusive. Once you've extracted what you need, what you don't need, you can put back and make good.
1: is that amazing stuff? Science that's out of this world, you could say. Katie Haler there, talking with Ian Miller. Hello, I'm Chris Barrow, bringing you a brand new podcast called Naked Gaming. This is where we look at gaming news.
9: Top three players in each of the last few levels of the game, they got a mention in my PhD thesis.
1: Reviews.
2: So you got a, like, jog, and then you've also got to squeeze it in and out. The ring, that is. <laughs> oh, you're putting me off.
9: And we also go back in time with Retro Revival. It said in the tutorial Mario jumps over the small objects automatically. So sometimes you think, well, what am I even here for?
1: Naked Gaming. Download it now wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Coming up, the online space pirates helping fight the coronavirus and the past and future of people on the move.
1: Last week, we explained to you how mass coronavirus testing was kicking off in Liverpool, one of the UK's cities hardest hit by the pandemic. The goal there is to screen all 500,000 people who live in and around the city and to isolate those who test positive. It's an attempt to get on top of the problem that more than half of coronavirus cases have no symptoms at all and are therefore being missed by the present testing process. It's also potentially a dry run for testing the entire UK population at a later date.
4: Beata Balgova is the editor-in-chief of Daily Smur, one of the country's major news publications, and Chris heard what she made of it.
10: First, the whole country was tested a week ago. The reason was that the government got quite nervous about the state of hospitals, and they thought that it's a good idea to test the entire population to see how widely spread the virus is. And then they repeated a second testing for those regions which came out as the most infected in the first wave of testing.
1: And people who were tested, what was then done to them? If, if they got a positive result, how was their case handled?
10: They had to self-isolate for 10 days. But perhaps it's interesting and important to say that even people who refused to undergo testing, they had to self-isolate. So it means that the testing wasn't voluntary, as the government stated originally, but they wanted to make sure they isolate a large mass of people who either refused to undergo testing or have a positive test result.
1: There's about 5 million people in the country in Slovakia, is that right?
10: Uh, Yes, it's slightly above 5 million
1: So how did they do testing at that sort of scale, and not once, but twice?
10: First, they managed to test uh, 3.6 million people, and they were able to do it only with the help of the army and the willingness of physicians and healthcare employees. Logistically, it was a, a very huge and demanding thing, and it's a great strain on the healthcare
1: And what was the reaction of the population? How did the the population react to being told this is what we're going to do?
10: They were quite disciplined. Part of the population was frustrated by the fact that it's claimed to be voluntary, but it wasn't. They just had to undergo the testing because otherwise they would not be able to go to work. Even uh, to do normal shopping, because now even shop owners are entitled to ask for a certificate, which once you get tested, you got like a blue piece of paper, which uh, is a certificate that you were tested uh, negative. During the actual testing, they were surprisingly disciplined. And at some places there were like three hour queues and people were lining up and and really uh, like waiting patiently to get tested.
1: Out of a country with about five million people, if three and a half million ish got tested, what's happened to the other one and a half million? Were they objectors who didn't want to get tested or were they just lost to follow up?
10: Some of them were elderly. The government said that they did not recommend people over 65 to undergo testing unless they really need to move around. But also, there are people who simply didn't undergo the testing. And during the second testing, they tested 1.8 million people. And these were the people who uh, are from the affected regions from the north. And
1: what's been the outcome of doing these two sets of testing? And what are they going to do now to try to keep a lid on things?
10: Well, if we don't want to trust the government, which is saying it's a big success, and but basically they managed to push down the the infection rate by 58% between the, the two testing, we really have to wait for what uh, the experts say. However, on the daily infection rates which we are getting, we can see uh, like a slight drop. But you cannot really tell if it is because of the governmental measures or if it is really the result of, of the testing. So we will have to wait a couple more weeks to really be able to say that if it is a good idea, turning your country into a laboratory.
4: Beata Valgova. All sorts of people have been getting involved in the battle against COVID. And there's now a new posse in town, Computer Gamers. They're helping out via a project that gets players of a massively popular online spacefaring game to solve puzzles as they play and identify immune cells for scientists trying to study the body's response to the coronavirus. Eva Higginbotham reports. Eva's is a difficult game to describe. You can be a space pirate. It goes around stealing or killing other capsuleers in the game. You could be someone who does industry where you look at the markets or you mine your own materials and then you build stuff for other players to use, other players to go blow up, or even yourself. You can be a trade
3: uh, where- That's Jesse, an avid player of a game called EVE Online, where, as you just heard, you can live out a whole complex life in space. But now, while you're absentmindedly mining for resources or waiting to go through a wormhole, there's a new activity to get your teeth stuck into, analysing data from studies on coronavirus as a part of Project Discovery. Ryan Brinkman explains.
0: The first and probably the most important thing is we're trying to help scientists in the fight against COVID. So one of the technologies that's being widely used is flow cytometry. What we use photosometry for is look at the different cells that are present in our blood, the white blood cells, that are used to both detect infection and to fight infection. We uh, take a sample of patient's blood and we label the cells so that they glow with light when they run past a laser one by one. What we label these cells is on proteins on the cell surface that we know define the function of these cells.
3: These protein markers act as signposts to scientists, telling them what kind of cells are present in a patient's blood. This is important because when your body mounts an immune response to something, a lot of different types of white blood cells get involved. And understanding which immune cells are prevalent, and in what proportions, tells scientists loads of information about how a patient is responding to an infection, like coronavirus, or a treatment. Scientists can now label up to 50 different proteins on the surface of these cells at the same time. But despite the power of this technique, the thing is...
0: Close data analysis sucks. We have 50-dimensional data that scientists are trying to look at. It's just really hard to traverse through this data when scientists are limited by a two-dimensional computer screen to try and find the cell populations that are important.
3: Essentially, flow cytometry analysis is time-consuming and laborious. It involves drawing shapes around clusters of dots, where each dot represents an individual cell from a patient's blood, and trying to decide if this dot is a part of that cluster, or is it in its own cluster, or maybe that one? You get the idea. And the fact is, it's currently just too complex and subjective to get a computer to do it all for us. After all, humans have evolved to be very, very good at seeing patterns.
0: People who didn't catch patterns very well were all eaten by saber toothed tigers millions of years ago, right?
3: So what Ryan and his team have done is broken down the 50-dimensional data into lots of two-dimensional puzzles. And that's where EVE Online comes in. These 2D puzzles are prettied up and uploaded into the EVE Online world, where players can access them as a part of a mini-game, like a side project to the main business of hunting down enemy spaceships. And the more puzzles you solve, the better rewards you get within the game. Obviously, I had to give it a go. Under the supervision of Pjarlskrita Bjarnason, who works for the company that makes EVE Online. I've actually set myself up with an account, I've made my character, I've got a spaceship... So what I'm looking at is basically... I could see a sort of graph with an X and Y axis, and there were all of these different coloured dots on the screen. Where there was a high density of dots in a section of the graph, they were all coloured red, and then in lower density they were blue or violet, like a heat map. Each of these dots is an individual cell, and by separating out the clusters, you're sorting out the cells into potentially different cell types. The tricky bit, though, is deciding where one cluster stops and another begins. So using my mouse, I'm just now drawing sort of lines around what looks like sort of an epicenter of dots. How am I doing with my lines?
9: I think you're doing pretty good so far.
3: Okay, great. I'm going to hit submit. See how I did. Ah, passed. Well, it says I'm now a trainee data analyst, so I'm pretty pleased with that result. Yeah. So it's all fun and literally games, but this is also a great example of what's called citizen science. Jérôme Valdespuel, another lead on the project.
6: Well, citizen science is the process of involving population into the scientific discovery process. And that's what we're doing through the Project Discovery Project.
3: And it's not just about getting more people involved in science. Having this many eyes on the same data means that the results of the analysis are more robust and also means that the data can be explored in a much deeper way than if scientists were doing it all on their own.
0: We have really one-on-one collaborations with many of the scientists providing the data and and they're really, honestly, very excited about the results the players have to have.
3: And it's also great for Ryan and Jerome's teams, because just in the last few months since the project began, they have received over 48 million individual pieces of flow cytometry analysis, which is an excellent basis for them to train artificial intelligence algorithms on how to do this analysis automatically. And with over 170,000 players contributing so far, that number is only going to get bigger. Jesse.
4: I encourage everyone, even if you've never played EVE Online and you want to contribute something to the coronavirus research, to give it a try. It's got some really cool graphics on to show kind of how the flow cytometry and how that works. It's very simple, easy, fun, therapeutic to get involved with.
3: And for Jerome, it's about more than flow cytometry, more than training algorithms, more even than coronavirus itself.
6: Because ultimately what you want to do is to To show people that doing science is not that complicated, actually can be fun, that doing it through a game allows you to remove this mental barrier we put for ourselves at contributing to science. And when you start doing it, you realise that you can make a difference and we can move forward all together toward this science-based society.
4: Eva Higginbotham there, and the music that you just heard comes from CCP Games, who created EVE Online. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire,
1: cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk.
3: Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions.
1: For the rest of this programme, we're now going to be taking a look at people on the move from the ancient past
4: to the global present. Us humans are really a migratory bunch, and we're going to follow that timeline and the great movements that have happened. With climate change redrawing maps of the world,
1: we're asking, what does the future hold? But first, let's go back to before-recorded history. We're anatomically modern humans, Homo sapiens, and our species arose about 250,000 years ago in Africa. At some point, our ancestors left that continent to spread across the rest of the world. Previous fossil and other evidence suggested that this began to happen from about 55,000 years ago, although the science was a bit shaky. That's why the recent discovery of a cornucopia of fossilised footprints in Arabia, which is, of course, outside Africa and dating from about 100,000 years ago, is a huge step forward in our understanding. The tracks include ancient elephants, horses, and, critically, what appear to be modern humans, i.e. us. Matthew Stewart is one of the discoverers.
11: What makes these findings in particular special is the age of the deposits, I would say. We dated the footprints to around about 125,000 years ago. This was a particularly humid period, and it's quite an important period for human dispersals out of Africa.
1: Can you tell us a bit about the area you were working in when you made the discovery? What does it actually look like today?
11: This is one of the largest deserts in Arabia. So you can picture, you know, very, very arid, little in terms of vegetation and animals, and just rolling, you know, sand dunes.
1: And when you went there, obviously you didn't go there anticipating you were going to find an amazing collection of footprints. So what did you expect to find?
11: The footprint findings were sort of quite a lucky finding. We were surveying a paleo lake, so an ancient lake deposit, as we've done, you know, hundreds of times in this area. And in this instance, we happened to notice that the surface of the Paleo Lake was covered in these footprints and trackways.
1: So it must have been pretty exciting for you when you, when you realised what you'd stumbled on.
11: Uh, yeah, it was, it was very exciting. In fact, we uh, were at the site for quite some time before one of our senior colleagues noticed the footprints. And as soon as we saw a couple of them, we realised that the entire ancient lake surface was covered in them.
1: And how do you know how old they are?
11: The footprints were being exposed by the erosion of these overlying lake sediments but there were still some of those overlying sediments left. So we were lucky enough to be able to date the sediments below and above. And so we used this method known as optically uh, stimulated luminescence dating, targeting these layers, which led us to conclude that the footprints were between 121 to 112,000 years old.
1: And who made the footprints?
11: We argue that these are footprints made by our species, Homo sapiens, on two grounds. There is no evidence for Neanderthals in that region at that time. What we do know is that we have Homo sapiens dispersing out of Africa at around about that time. The second line of evidence is the size of the footprints. So we did some stature and mass estimates based on the footprints themselves and compared those to estimates of Homo sapiens and Neanderthals based on fossilised bone. They come out more closely to Homo sapiens.
1: Critically though, when for years we've been talking about how humans left Africa because we agree that anatomically modern humans like us almost certainly had their origins on the African continent, and that's based on a whole range of different lines of evidence, isn't it, including genetic evidence. We've been telling people as a community, scientifically for years, that that the exodus out of Africa to populate the rest of the world seems to be around about 50 to 60,000 years ago. But you're pointing to a a different geography from Africa, and you're pointing to a timeline 60,000 years earlier. So does this then suggest that actually we had it wrong?
11: Yeah, this sort of joins a growing corpus of evidence suggesting that this traditional idea of this, you know, uh, exodus out of Africa at around 50,000 years ago isn't entirely correct. There is growing both, you know, archaeological and fossil evidence to suggest that we dispersed out of Africa earlier, all the way to, you know, northern Australia by around about 65, 70,000 years ago the picture's just becoming much more complex we it appears that we left multiple times that there were dispersals back into africa it's adding to this much more complex picture
1: and presumably if these footprints were in what is now a dried up lake it was once not a dried up lake and it presumably then was not in a desert so what was the environment there like and does that point towards why these early humans could have been making a beeline for that geography
11: absolutely um the Arabian Peninsula, much like the Sahara, wasn't always the hyper-arid desert that they are today. And in fact, numerous times over the past you know, million years, the conditions have changed drastically during what are known as interglacials. so you know, quite humid periods. The last interglacial, which is what the footprints date to, being one of these very humid periods, changing the Sahara and Arabian deserts into big open grasslands, large permanent you know, rivers and lakes, and a vastly different flora and fauna as well.
1: Matthew Shirt from the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology, and that article appeared in Science Advances. Now
4: let's jump forward a hundred thousand years to what might be the largest movement of people in recorded history, the transatlantic slave trade. For hundreds of years, people were taken from Africa across to the Americas, leaving an enormous legacy on our world today. The slavers kept thorough shipping records, but for historians, it's always unclear whether they're seeing the full picture. That's why geneticists from the company 23andMe have been pouring through the genes of people in the Americas today and checking to see if their genetic ancestry to parts of Africa matches the historical records. Stephen Micheletti joins us from the team. Stephen, welcome.
12: Hello, thank you for having me.
4: Can you give me some context? How big was this movement of people?
12: Millions of people have been directly moved by slave trades over the course of human history. But the largest slave trade in recent history, the transatlantic slave trade, was this triangular trade between Europe, Africa, and the Americas, where one of the commodities happened to be human lives. During this event between the 16th and 19th centuries, historians estimate about 12.5 million Africans were taken and forced across the Atlantic. But it's important to note that only about 10 million of these enslaved people survived the voyages.
4: 10 million people is a lot to have on your plate still, though. So how did you go about looking into this?
12: Our team started by reviewing the history of the transatlantic slave trade through studying slavevoyages.org, which is this digital compilation of about 35,000 transatlantic shipping manifests. And so for economic purposes, there were these detailed records kept, which documented each enslaved person taken from Africa. So we looked at those records and such variables as the number of individuals taken from each region of Africa and where in the Americas these individuals were being taken to and other variables like men, women, and children being taken. And so that's on the historical record side. But we're, of course, experts in genetics, so we wanted to actually look at the genetics of people across the Americas. And we're fortunate to have 50,000 study participants across the world today willing to share their DNA for this research. So we specifically looked at genetic data from these participants today who have African ancestry, and we traced their DNA back to populations across Africa to see if their genetic connections match the estimates from shipping manifests. Just to give a quick example, um, if more people were taken from the Congo region of Africa and brought to, say, Brazil, does this mean that Afro-Brazilians today have strong genetic connections to populations of the Congo.
4: Broadly, then, when you're looking at these two lines of evidence, do they seem to match up?
12: Broadly, yes. In most regions of the Americas, there was a strong correlation between the strength of genetic connection with an African population and the number of individuals taken from that population during the slave trade. For instance, the majority of enslaved people forced into parts of the Caribbean were from tribes of Nigeria, and consequently, people in the Caribbean today tend to have the strongest genetic connections with tribes of Nigeria. And that's common in many of the countries we looked at, but it wasn't always the case.
4: I mean, you emphasized the word broadly when you started that answer, which makes me think that there are some places where you found little mismatches. Is that true?
12: Yes. And there's, there's definitely a lot of discordances that we came across. And let me give you an example of two broad disagreements One is by far the most enslaved people were taken to Latin American countries, compare 400,000 enslaved people that were brought directly to the U.S. from Africa versus about 4 million that were brought directly to Brazil. And our expectation then is because so many Africans were brought to Latin America, there should be more African representation there. However, we found the opposite to be true people of African descent from Latin American countries tended to have the least amount of African ancestry. So that was a big surprise. And then the second broad disagreement was that mostly men, according to the records, were enslaved during the transatlantic slave trade. But we have genetic evidence that people of African descent tend to have inherited their African ancestry from their maternal side. So in other words, African women were estimated to have been reproducing more than African men.
4: Have you got any way to explain that? Because that that seems like a weird couple of blips to have in your data.
12: For one, we found that there were different national ideologies and different ways of treating enslaved people between Latin American countries and other countries. Latin American countries tended to work their enslaved people to death. And because of this, enslaved people weren't having many children and weren't able to pass on their African ancestry. And therefore, there's not a lot of African representation today. In terms of the African women reproducing at higher rates, this matches up with the known accounts of rape and exploitation of African women over time, where basically African women were forced, um, against their will, to reproduce.
4: Really sobering stuff. Stephen, I'm afraid we have to leave it there. What a sobering note to end on. That's Stephen Micheletti from 23andMe. And those results, if you're interested, are published in the American Journal of Human Genetics. We're moving swiftly through our show about humans on the move. And now that we've looked at the past, let's talk about migration today and in the future.
1: More people are on the move nowadays than ever before. The climate's changing, but the world is also becoming more globalised and more urbanised. Ollie Brown is a former UN migration expert. He now works for Chatham House and he's here to take us through the different parts of this story. Ollie, how many people do we think are on the move in the here and now?
9: It might not feel like it with 2020 and COVID lockdowns, but we live in a a period of unprecedented mobility. 750 million people are migrants within their own countries, typically moving from rural areas to urban areas. And another 250 million people live outside the country of their birth. So collectively, globally, that's one in eight people are migrants. And it's it's a hugely important driver of development. It spreads ideas, connects the world, offers opportunities to individuals and families. But there are also millions of people who've been forced out of their homes and off their land as refugees or displaced people. And who are we actually talking about here? And where specifically? It varies around the world. So two thirds of all refugees at the end of 2019 came from just five countries, Syria, Afghanistan, South Sudan, Venezuela and Myanmar. But of those people who are displaced by natural disasters and industrial accidents, again, that can happen all around the world. Numerically, India, the Philippines, Bangladesh and China have the most people who were displaced by disasters in 2019. But it's not just countries you might think of as being a little bit poorer that that have this. The fifth on that list is the US. And if we wind back the
1: clock a bit, we began this part of the programme with that wonderful story of those footprints in Arabia 100,000 plus years ago. And those individuals were lured there by what we were told was an oasis at the time. It wasn't a desert then. Are the same sorts of factors luring people across the earth today or or equally pushing them away from their homeland?
9: Yeah, absolutely. I I think people have always moved, as we heard, in response to the climate and to find better living conditions elsewhere. What's different now is that the speed and the scale of the change has accelerated so much and that humans are the root of the changes we're seeing. Basically, human activity... Has changed the environment and reshaped the environment so significantly that many scientists agree that we 've entered what they 're calling a new geological epoch, the anthropocene and just to give you some examples since pre industrial times, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has increased fifty percent. human activity now moves three times as much earth every year as all of the world 's rivers combined, and we 're on track to have more uh, more plastic than fish in the oceans by two thousand and fifty so Human activity is redrawing the map of the world. It's redrawing where rain falls, where you can grow crops, how hard storms, droughts and floods hit. And that's having a real impact on where people can live. Ollie Brown, we'll come back to you in a second, Ollie.
4: Let's talk now about a particular case study of Indonesia who are currently planning to move their capital city from Jakarta to a proposed city that doesn't yet exist. This isn't the first time this has been done in the world. For example, Brazil constructed its current capital, Brasilia, as a planned city in the 50s. But the environmental pressures here are new because according to UCLA planning expert, Kien Go, Jakarta is literally sinking into the sea. Ken is with us. Ken, can you please explain this, this danger?
13: Jakarta floods chronically. It floods every year and every five to seven years or so, There is a massive inundation that covers about a third of the city. And this flooding is getting worse because of rapid and severe land subsidence. Parts of the city are literally sinking at up to about 10 centimeters a year. And this sinking is primarily caused by the overpumping of groundwater, which leads to soil compaction. This is made worse by rampant urban development, where we see more and more of the ground in the city covered by asphalt and concrete, leaving less and less permeable surfaces for rainwater to seep back in. The ground is sinking, and it is also becoming less permeable. On top of that, because of climate change, sea levels in the Jakarta Bay are rising, and precipitation is becoming more and more uncertain due to these factors. And so all this is basically a recipe for catastrophic flooding in a city that already faces other long-term problems such as congestion and stark inequality.
4: I mean, given such a perfect storm of horrible factors that you described, are, are Indonesia planning to move everyone in Jakarta to a different place? And if not, what are the people left behind? What are they going to do?
13: That is a key question, a really excellent one, because I think many people sort of assumed that they would, you know, like pick up Jakarta and move it to another island. And, and that's just not the case. Jakarta is a city of about 10 million people in the capital district proper. And it's been the center of economic growth in the country and region since Dutch colonial times. So if the national government does build a new capital on the island of Borneo as it plans, it will certainly move the administrative and political functions of the national government, along with some services and support functions. But you know, Jakarta will remain the population and economic center of the country for the foreseeable future. And so what happens in the city? It's projected that about four and a half million people live in places that will face catastrophic flooding around 2030 or so. And many of these are poor urban residents who live in the informal Kampung settlements. These are essentially urban villages along rivers and canals and along the coastline. Many of them may well have to move, not necessarily to a new city, but towards more safe and sustainable living conditions within the city. And a big question really is how the city, whether or not it's the seat of national government, addresses the flooding problem in a way that is just and equitable for its most vulnerable and marginalized residents.
4: Over the next, what, 50 to 100 years were projected huge (laughs) amounts of sea level rise. I can't remember the figures, but something like up to seven metres at the worst estimate. In that situation, you need a little bit more than better living conditions. So what are people going to do?
13: Well, the city has been trying various plans, including ongoing efforts to dredge and widen the canals and rivers, as well as much more ambitious plans. Some years ago, city officials along with a group of Dutch consultants proposed a large scale master plan also known as the Giant seawall. In its most ambitious iteration when it was proposed, it called for essentially a new city shaped like a Garuda, which is the mythical eagle that is the national symbol for Indonesia to be built on landfill in the Jakarta Bay. This new city would create massive retention ponds behind it between the seawall city and the existing city that could be pumped low enough so that the rivers and canals in the city drain into it. And this ambitious plan has faced a lot of protests, often by poor urban residents who live along the coastlines who are afraid that such a plan would destroy the mangroves, destroy the fisheries, and displace them. So more recent iterations have really trimmed down its grand ambitions, and the city still hopes that some of these initiatives will address the worst of the flooding in the coming years. But as you say, you know, when we think about 50, 100 years down the line, we need to do more than that.
4: Ken, Thank you so much for taking us through that case study. That's Ken Go from UCLA.
1: Migration expert Olly Brown is still with us. Um, Ollie, obviously the devil's in the detail with all of this and forward planning is the critical thing. We've talked about the here and now. We've talked about how many people are on the move. We must consider what we're likely to anticipate in the future because we've got to plan ahead for that. How do we think that uh, the migration patterns of
9: tomorrow are going to look? That's a huge question. I mean, we're in the middle of a a massive demographic change with a shift towards urbanisation already. Half the world live in urban areas. By 2050, that's going to be two thirds. The World Bank estimates that the number of people who might be displaced as a result of climate change could be 140 million by 2050. Some people say 200 million. I mean, broadly... The people who are going to move are going to be poor people in vulnerable places. So people in coastal cities, people who are living in delta areas like the Nile Delta, the Mekong Delta, or small island states like Tuvalu or Kiribati that are only, you know, a metre or two over sea level already. But pretty much everywhere is affected. I mean, large parts of southern Florida, for example, could be underwater by 2050. And the U.S. government is already starting to move some of the most exposed people out of harms way, I mean people well, I was just going to ask for... you that because obviously it's the u s is a very developed economy the u
1: k is a very developed economy with the capacity to do forward planning. Are all countries thinking the same way though, or are there some countries that are living a bit hand to mouth and they don't have a future plan, and what's going to happen to them?
9: Well, absolutely. I mean, it it really depends what you can put in place in terms of how you can plan around this. Um, The Netherlands can put in place a very effective system of dikes and flood defences to stop the large parts of the country that are already under sea level. But other countries like Bangladesh, for example, can't do that. And actually, perhaps even counterintuitively, some of the poorest and the most vulnerable people may not even be able to move because they they simply aren't able to get away. They're forced to make do where they are. And is there a kind of a global plan in place
1: then, so that when a particular country is underwater, those people are going to get displaced, they have to go somewhere? Or are people just thinking, well, we'll worry about that when it happens?
9: Well, I mean, there's plans at all sorts of different levels. So the president of Kiribati, for example, bought land in Fiji in 2014 to sort of potentially translocate the population to another country, effectively. Every country in the world is pretty much Starting to think about how climate change affects them affects their economy affects their ability to to manage and then at a global level 150 odd countries signed something called a global compact on safe orderly and regular migration in 2018 That is trying to put in a global plan for how to deal with these issues, but it's voluntary It's it doesn't have any teeth. It's sort of series of good ideas But as you were saying the devil is in the detail
1: Ollie, we must leave it there, but uh, thank you. I think there's probably a bigger problem than we can solve here. Thanks very much. That's Ollie Brown. He is from Chatham House. And thanks to our other guests this week, Matt Stewart, Stephen Meccoletti and Kien Goh. So it's not all fast cars and spaceships. Throughout our history, humans have been on the move and that looks very much likely to be a trend that's going to continue.
4: We've just got time for question of the week. And this week, Eva Higginbotham has been crunching the numbers to figure out an answer to this one from Beata.
9: If 300 years ago there was one person with a certain surname, how many people could have their surname today?
3: Now, I am the proud participant in a Facebook group called The Family Higginbotham, which boasts 1.8 thousand members with the tagline, we are all cousins somehow. People are always posting their latest detective work, tracing Higginbotham's back through the ages. But Could we do the reverse, as Beerta suggests, and instead project forwards to see how many people could have our name in the future? I put the question to Mass whiz James Grime.
6: Well, that question was of great interest to the Victorian nobility, who are very keen to know whether their grand, noble names would live on or die out. So let's start with a quick calculation. And to do this, we will treat surnames in the traditional sense – as something that is passed on from father to son. Of course, that's not necessarily true, but allows us to perform a calculation based on the average number of male children.
3: Now, in the 1800s, the average number of children per family was five. But unfortunately, two or three children typically didn't reach adulthood. Later, as the infant mortality rate decreased, so did the fertility rate.
6: So for the sake of our calculation, let's say the average number of children has been a steady three children per family, or about 1.5 male children. That means for each generation, the number of males increases by 50%. And over 300 years, say 10 generations, the male population would grow from one individual to 58. Of course, I've used an average here. If instead each generation had three boys that the number of descendants sharing that surname could be as large as 59,000. On the other hand, a couple of generations with no male children could lead to the surname dying out completely.
3: And it was the potential dying out of their surname that the Victorian nobility was so concerned about. So two great Victorian statisticians, Francis Galton and Henry Watson, decided to investigate the problem.
6: And they determined that a surname would ultimately die out if the average number of male children was less than or equal to one. Now, that might sound obvious because that means the average number of males would be decreasing with each generation. But now they could show that this was a mathematical guarantee.
3: So that means that by my calculation, in 10 generations, we could have 106,288,200 Higginbothams. Yes, yes, plenty to start the master plan. Oh. Uh, sorry, what? Oh, yes. Um, Thanks, James. And next week we'll be looking into this question from Robin.
1: I often wonder when I listen to music in the car when my dog is with me, since they hear higher frequencies than humans, do they also perceive, for example, loud music
8: louder than us?
1: So, what do you reckon? Email Chris at the scientist.com. You can also join in the debate on our forum. That's the naked scientist.com forward slash forum to pen your thoughts. Or if you have a question of your own that you'd like us to consider, you can send that in by email or there is a web form on our site, naked scientist.com slash question. Now, before we go, very special thanks to Ali and William, Salome, Judith, Thomas, and Janti, also Yap, Susan, Kim, Elsie, and David all of whom made some donations this week to support us. We're over two-thirds of the way towards our target now, which is really good progress. I really can't emphasise enough how much this helps to keep our show on the road. So please, if you do enjoy this programme and you want to help us to keep it going, please do support us. We've made it really easy. Go to nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. And that's all we've got time for this week. Next week, we're
4: continuing our month of movement, but this time we're going to need to bring our microscopes as we're looking at the movement of cells. From energetic sperm to determined gut bacteria, how do the cells that make you you get where they need to be? The Naked Scientist comes to you from the Institute for Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Phil Sansom, and from all of us here at the Naked Scientist team, until next time, goodbye!